What's going on here? Why are we spending so much time on this topic? There's one reason. There's one reason. And that reason is expressed in 1 Timothy 1.11 and 1 Timothy 4.15. When the apostle refers to God as the blessed God or the blessed Savior. God is blessed or blessed. Hmm. And if Evan's in here, hopefully he'll correct my Greek. But the word blessed there is the same word as used in the Beatitudes, remember, in Matthew chapter 5. The word makarios. And it means, among other things, but it really means this, not just as a at the end of the definition, but right up in the beginning and a central aspect of the meaning of this word, makarios, it means happy. It means that settled feeling, experience of contentment and well-being, peace that produces a happiness. Paul calls God happy. So why is it that we are spending so much time dealing with the issue of happiness? Because God is a happy God. Have you seen the faces and the carvings of some of these demon gods, these idols? I don't know, maybe there are a couple here and there, but do most of them have a smile on their face or a scowl and a grimace? These things are hideous. These things are to be feared. And so the world's concept, the understanding of the world, because they know there is a God and they know that they are sinners in some way, God has communicated to every living being that we will stand before God in judgment. They see our God as a mean, vengeful, vindictive God. Now, certainly, God will punish the unrighteous. But the great declaration and heart's desire of God is to know this, I am in myself, in my inner being, about myself, within the context of who I am, I am a happy God. Now what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us? It means everything. It means everything for us. Why? Because God created us to be in his image, Genesis 1.26. And a fundamental aspect of that being able to be imaging God is that we will be imaging one of his central characteristics. That we, the way we are in ourselves and the way we function, the way we think, what we want, where we go, everything about us should be wrapped up and accomplished within the sphere of our also having been created in the image of a happy God that we also should be a happy people. So this morning we want to make sure that we anchor our 
happiness where it needs to be anchored. It needs to be anchored in the only being in all creation who is in himself because of who he is eternally a happy being. So because of this, you see, our happiness is not an option. It's a necessity. If you are not experiencing happiness, you are not fully and correctly imaging who God is. I mean, let's face it. Who wants to worship a God who is portrayed by a believer? Oh, I can go anywhere and get that kind of a God. But when the world sees that in the midst of everything that is going on, to the contrary of happiness, that we are a happy people, not giddy and silly, but basically within the soul of our being, that settled contentment and at peaceableness, we are happy in ourselves and exuding that. That's the kind of God people want to find out about. That's the God they want. Now, why is God so happy? You may say, well, he gets his way all the time. (laughs) Why is God so happy? Well, he owns everything. Remember the cattle on a thousand hills? I never did could figure out, what about the other hills? That's 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 an aside. Uh, Well, of course he's happy. There's too much to say today why God is happy, but let me say it succinctly this way. And let me try to capture and bring together why God is happy in one verse. And that verse is 1 John 4, 8. And at the end of that verse, the apostle says this, God is love. See, why is God happy? Because he dwells in a community of relational love. Why is God happy? Because he dwells in a community of relational love. That's the essence, the the reason for, the result of, etc., of God being happy. Now, when the apostle says God is love, that's a simple statement. Oh, God is love. All of us have heard it. But in that statement is the revelation of the most astounding truth that there is about God. The other night we had perspectives here. Thursday night, and they were all dressed up in, am I right to say Muslim clothes, Islamic clothing and and garb and so on? Yes. And so, B.B. walks in, Brandon Bass walks in, and he has this thing on his head, and he's wearing a dress. Brother, why would you be wearing a dress? And so he explains what's going on. And so I asked him a question. I said, what is the one difference between Allah and the God of the Bible? Did you ever figure it out? And the answer is in John, 1 John 4, 8. 
God is love. Well, you may say, well, wait a minute. They say God, their God is love. But when they say that, they don't know what they're talking about. Why? Why? What makes the difference? In order for love to exist, it needs an object, another person, to be loved and to return that love. Therefore, when the Bible says God is love, it is making the most astounding statement about who God is in himself, his nature, that God is not a single person being like Allah or any of these other dudes running around. But God is a family within himself. He is a trinity. This is the most fundamental and distinctive difference and truth about God himself. In the one being of God, there exists three distinct divine persons dwelling in an atmosphere, if you would, of eternal relationship through love. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in this relationship, God experiences perfect and uninterrupted happiness about the relationship. God's love, in short, is a communal, is a relational love. And in fact, it is impossible. May I repeat that? It is impossible. May I say it one more time? It is impossible for any of us or anyone to say that love exists and really is love apart from relationship. It's impossible. Relationship and love go together like a horse and Carriage. You can't have one without the other. You see, this is why in Genesis 2.18, when God made Adam in Genesis 2.7 and went on, and then when we get to 2.18, the Lord says, hey, it's not good for Adam to be alone. Why? You see, because Adam being alone, one person cannot image God. Let us make man in our image. So he makes Adam in 2.7, remember? And then by the time we get to 2.18, we, we hear it's not good. Why? Because Adam being a single person cannot demonstrate God's love. Can't do it. Another person is needed. So you get the rest of the verse. What does it say? I will make him a helper, fitted suitable for him. You see, God has created us to experience rich and loving relationships that reflect his kind of relational love. Not the kind that we say is good, not the kind certainly that Hollywood says is good, but only the kind that is revealed through the word of scripture by the Holy Spirit. This is the only genuine love that exists in all the universe. All other love is a counterfeit. 
This is why when you look at John 13, 34, Jesus is with the disciples, remember, washing the feet, etc., before the crucifixion. And he gives this command. He says, love one another in the same way that I have loved you. You are to love one another. It's not a suggestion. It is a command. Love one another. He didn't say, hey, look, if the other person is treating you all right, if they haven't sinned, if they've done everything okay, if all of this, if, if. He just says, love one another. Love one another. And you understand that when he says one another, he is essentially saying that love and community, love and relationship go together. He just doesn't say, go out and love. Go out and be loving. He specifically identifies how and whom to love. One another, the brethren. And in this kind of a love, we are to be demonstrating and we will be reflecting or imaging. Remember the image, Genesis 1.26. This is the kind of love that when we are participating together in this kind of a relational community of love, that the world may be able to see the love that exists within God among these three persons of God. You see, this love is certainly on display in the New Testament. There's several places where Jesus says the Father loves the Son. And also the Son loves the Father. And you see such a dynamic of activity there. Remember Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus undergoing into the waters and coming up again. What happens? The heavens open and the voice of God, the Father Almighty himself, declares to all the world, but specifically to this man who has committed himself to come to do the will of the Father. He says, this is my beloved son, the son of my love, with whom I am well pleased. You hear and see the dynamic of the love between the Father and the Son. On the Mount of Transfiguration, you remember in Matthew chapter 17 or Mark chapter 7, Jesus is transfigured before them. Remember the radiance of light coming through from him. And Moses and Elijah, you remember, are with him on this mountain. And once again, God from heaven says, this is my beloved Son. you know, we read the Bible without feeling the Bible. Do you know what I mean? Yesterday, now forget everything what I said about AJ. Yesterday, Lusher High School, where my grandson attends, was having a, what do they call that? A crawfish, a big old entertainment thing. And they had the, the jazz band up on, you know, there. And my grandson not only played in the jazz band, but he played one of the solos all by himself. Now, suffice it to say, everybody in the band knew that there was a man in the audience <laughs> who knew Jonathan. And it's always going to be like that. You see, my love for my grandson is not an unfeeling, uncaring love. It reaches to the depth of my being. 
And when God says, this is my son, he's not just saying, hey, that's my son. This is the declaration of a God who is so ecstatic and happy. He says, world, this is my son. He's my son. He's mine. Do you get it? Feel the energy and the excitement and the happiness and the joy and the exuberance of God over his son. Don't just read the Bible. This is my son. Listen to him. And we move on to other things because we know there are other. No. This is the heartbeat of God. Displaying to the world visibly in this man, this eternal relationship of passionate, unending, eternal, total, perfect, pure, loving relationship. That's why he sends Jesus. So that we also could be a part of this. We were saved for this purpose. I don't want to be in relationship, everybody. I'm upset with somebody. I'm ignoring someone. I don't like that person. Every one of us have felt this way. Has anybody not felt that way? Would you raise your hand? So we can stone you. I mean, would you raise your hand? <laughs> you didn't know you could come to church and get stoned, huh? Uh, anybody not feel that way? We are denying one of the principal ways that God reveals himself. And we are denying God his privilege of joy and happiness over us. When we have those attitudes about anybody within the family of God, for whatever reason. When we think that way or feel that way about anybody in the family of God, for whatever reason. Because I know where you are. Well, but you don't know. Go to God and just say to God, Father, I have refused to love so-and-so because of this and this. So would you treat me the same way as I'm treating that person? How many of us would want God to love us the way we love others? Any hands on that? We'd be fried right away. <laughs> Come on, church, let's wake up and get with the program. He saved us for this. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1.9. For God is faithful by whom we were called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. Paul says that's why you were saved in 1 Corinthians 1.9. You were called into the fellowship with Christ. In 1 John, I'm sorry, John 17, 3, in Jesus' great high priestly prayer before he goes to the cross. In verse 3, he says, for this is eternal life. Remember, our salvation, eternal life, being born again, knowing God, being justified, sanctified, being glorified, going to heaven. Remember, this is eternal life. What? What's eternal life? That they, he's praying to the Father, that they may know thee. 
the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, that they may know. Epinosis is, is that relational, loving activity, that knowing through love relationship. That's what eternal life is all about. That's why you were saved. You weren't saved because you needed to be saved. You were saved because God thankfully, by mercy, called each one of us into this loving family of his so that as we are called into this loving family, then we can, as a family, be reflecting the divine family so that the world may know who this God is. Now, I'm going to try to get to John 17, 20 to 26, and I'm hitting this heaven and nothing's... There it is. Let's read, read together. Now, look at this prayer. Look at Jesus' prayer here. And listen to the heartbeat of what Jesus is praying. He says this. Yeah. I do not ask for these alone, for the disciples 12, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, us. That's us. That they may all be one family relationship. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may know. I'll just turn around and do it this way. (laughs) I, I can't do that. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I may known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Did you get that? Look at that verse 26. That is one of the most astounding and startling statements you will ever, ever hear and read. And we need to look at it and think about it and drink it in. I had trouble with this verse for years. I made known to them your name. We were saved. Right? And I'm going to continue to make it known. We are being sanctified by the Spirit and living in community. Why? That the love, the community of love, the relational love between the Father and the Son, this community of sharing, that the love with which you have loved me, that that very same love with which the Father has loved the Son is now poured out upon us. That as the children of God, God loves us with the same intensity and purity and longevity of the love that he has for his own son. Now, I barked at this for many years. The way I was raised, I guess I did bark at it. Now, let's, let's be honest. 
How many of us really, that, that's hard to digest. Anybody in here, that's hard to digest. I mean, you see, we know it's easy for God to love somebody else, but we know ourselves. We're not called to love ourselves. We're called to allow God's love to permeate us. The problem is we love ourselves the wrong way too much. So this is not like one of these self things. This is a Christ thing. Look at how Bruce Ware puts it about this relationship of God. In this relationship, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit love one another. As we go through it, think about ourselves. Support one another. Assist one another. Team with one another. Honor one another. Communicate with one another. And respect and enjoy one another. Is that how we are relating to every single person in Christ? Is that how we are relating to every single person in Christ? If I leave out just one person, I have denied the effectiveness of God's love. Even one person. For whatever reason. As I said in School of the Word, Bill is teaching Philemon. May I make one more passionate plea? Please come. And this little letter of Philemon has such a big message about our relationships. And Bill has been quoting from a German pastor who was hanged by the Germans right before the end of World War II in April of 45, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And in this little book, Life Together, Bonhoeffer writes this. Christian community means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ, nothing more and nothing less. Those of you who were in class this morning are getting a double dose of this. Aren't you glad you're getting two cups of sugar instead of just one? Two candy bars. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. What does this mean? It means first that a Christian needs others. Why? For the sake of Jesus Christ. This is all about God. It means second that a Christian comes to others only through Jesus Christ. It means third that from eternity we have been chosen in Christ, accepted in time, and united for eternity. But if there is, no, if there is so much happiness and joy even in a single encounter of one Christian with another, if there's so much even with one how many of us have experienced just a load of happiness from a person whom we love and loves us? Loads of happiness even with one. What inexhaustible riches must invariably open up for those who love by God's will are privileged to live in daily community life with other Christians. It is easily forgotten that the community of Christians 
is a gift of grace from the kingdom of God, a gift that can be taken from us any day. Bonhoeffer understood this in prison. Paul understood this. Read some of his prison epistles. Therefore, let those who until now have had the privilege of living a Christian life together with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of their hearts. Whoops. Let them thank God on their knees and realize it's grace. Nothing but grace that we are still permitted to live in the community of Christians today. You know, we talk a lot about and we read a lot about disparaging, impugning, degradating the grace of God. And if I were to get up here and start using certain curse words and slur terms and racial comments, you would say, oh, my God. And you'd be right. But there's something much worse than that. Something much deeper to God than that. You see, what touches God the most deeply is not that Hollywood does what it does. It's not the homosexual agenda, and it's not same-sex marriages. It doesn't touch God like our relationships touch God. The next time we get all in a lather about that stuff out there, let's make sure that in here, among ourselves, in this community and in the Christian community at large, we are doing the relational love. And with them, we still don't have an excuse to lather up anyway, but that will keep you and me from lathering. Now, Gene would tell you, I have struggles with this. I get excited and upset about certain things. You may not know that, but I do. So does Jean now. But she just does it in a quiet and smiling way. (laughs) So the question now is how do we maintain and mature these kinds of loving relationships in a way that God's happiness remains the central feature? How do we do it? How do we do this? We've, we've first seen the necessity and the reason for it. Are there any problems with that? Does, does everyone know now the necessity and the reason for happiness? Do we all get that part? Everybody on board with that? Well, what do we do? How do we maintain and mature this? How was that done? Well, there, there are a number of ways. Obviously, we must seek to know and relate to others. Hey, we must actually look for relationships and seek them out. Not just from the pretty people. Not just from the whatever people. But wherever God leads you to go. Seek them out. And when you are sought for relationship, reciprocate. Agree with it. Become involved in a community group or covenant group, I think they call them now. 
become involved with School of the Word. Why is he saying so much about School of the Word? Because it is God himself who is giving us the bread of life in that class. Be involved in Alpha, relationships. Royal Rangers and Missionettes. I mean, we just heard about that this morning. So many other ways. Now, don't come up and say, you didn't mention the the ministry that I'm involved with. Well, I don't. Let's just be involved and open our ears and see what God is doing in the church. And let's be involved. And also, let's be open to the Holy Spirit that he will lead us into other venues. Jerry Lincoln came to us not too long ago. And in his normal way, you know, I think God, and, and then in a great, wonderful way, we love you, Jerry. You said to us, hey, we need to reinstitute the care team. Thank you for that. So relationships, relationships of love. Invite others over for a meal or coffee. And remember, if you invite certain people, they're going to eat you out of house and home. Now, Terrence, I'm not picking on you when I looked at you. I love you. They're going to eat you out of house and home. Look, there's some skinny people in this church who put you under the table with what they eat. Hang out together. I mean, where's Chef Afield? Where's, where's that boy? Where are you, Chef? You and I, this young guy over there, Scott, came up to this old bat a week ago and says, hey, look, I want to get together for, with you for breakfast. And I said, why? <laughs> what have you done wrong? <laughs> no, I said, love to. And then he says, don't you love these guys when they say that? Because I, I think the Lord has really put on my heart that I need the wisdom of older people. Thanks a lot, Scott. <laughs> Man, how old are you? <laughs> so, let, we're going to go out for breakfast, what, Wednesday morning? You paying or am I paying? Okay, you're paying. Anybody want to come? <laughs> we'll all go together. Seek people. Have, hang out. Do things together. Go jogging together. Nancy and Jean used to jog together. Now, I think when they get together, they just kind of walk. But, you know, whatever. Remember when you all used to jog together? Don't ask me to jog. I don't jog anymore because of my back operation. But, you know, vacation together. See, all of these are important, but the most important way is this. We need to gaze on the one who came and who perfectly demonstrated the activity and the power and the effect of relational love. We need to gaze on how the Son of God loved his Father. That's the foundation of what needs to happen. Oh, all these others are very important activities. So we don't deprecate or demean any of this. We just say that all of these are built on a foundation of how did Jesus relate to the Father in this earthly ministry. Because that's the only way we know how he related when we see him as a human being. How did he do it? When you know, when you look at chapter 2 of Luke, there's a very interesting early picture of Jesus' relationship with God. You remember the story? Joseph and Mary and a whole family go down to Jerusalem. And the festival is happening. 
And they, they trucked along, remember, in big groups in those days. And Joseph and Mary and all the family members would leave. And about a day or two later, oh my goodness, we've lost the Son of God. How are we going to explain this? <laughs> I mean, I've lost things before, but we've lost Jesus. So they frantically go back to Jerusalem and say, wow, we hope we can find him. And they get him and they, come on home, son. And in verse 52, the word says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. Jesus increased in favor with God. He increased in favor with God. Why? What was the reason for this increase? What was the kernel of activity in his love? What was the kernel of activity in his love which caused Luke, by the Holy Spirit, to say that Jesus increased in favor with God? What was that activity in love that caused that to be said about Jesus? Well, look at the rest of it. He went down with his family and came to Nazareth and was in submission to his mom and them. The kernel, the seed, was Jesus' obedience to the Father. At the age of 12, Jesus was learning to be obedient to his parents. And in being obedient to his parents, he was obeying and pleasing God the Father. So by the time we get to the baptism, Jesus has been demonstrating an obedient life of a son. Yes, to his earthly parents. Why did he and could he do it? Because he was led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, and in his obedience to others on this earth, he was really being obedient to the Father. Colossians tells you this about slaves obeying whatever. And then he says in verse 24, for it is the Lord Christ whom we serve. Let's look at another aspect of Jesus' obedience to the Father. Luke twenty-two forty-two. Father, if you are willing, oh, Father, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The obedience of the Son to the Father. Let's look at another aspect of the extent of that obedience. The extent of it. Because you're going to say, how far? How far? How often? How much? We've all asked that. When difficulties come, how far? How much? The Word of God tells you. Though Jesus was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't come here and say, look, I'm God, everybody bow down. He came as the humble servant obeying the Father's will. 
verse 7. But he made himself, what? Uh, what, what? Nothing. nothing. You see what love does? It makes self nothing so that God becomes everything. Taking on the form of a servant. How many of us want to be servants of God? Hmm? But how many enjoy being treated like one? Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. To what extent? To the point of death, even death on the cross. Have any of us obeyed yet that much? Any of us in our struggles with one another to love and relate to one another? It's been difficult. I mean, how many of us have had some difficult relationships over the years? Oh, I've had a lot of them. I think maybe I've been some of the primary reasons in some cases and not, not in others. Oh, it's, it's tough. I get told all the time in the office, but you don't understand, it's hard. So, have we come to this place that we have loved this much? So, I would ask, if what you're going through in this relationship that's difficult, is it this difficult of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2? Is it this difficult, even death on the cross? The next time we want to excuse our lack of love by difficulty or whatever external from ourselves, let's remember verse 8 in this Philippians 6, uh, Philippians 2.8. And being found in the form of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Let's remember that. And let's, if we're going to continue to rebel against God, let's say this. Look, God, I got it worse than Jesus. Okay? I got it worse than Jesus. I know Jesus died a horrible death. But you don't understand. I've been slandered. I've been ignored. I've been talked about. I've been sinned against. No one like Jesus. You see, Jesus' ability to experience a loving relationship with God was dependent upon his obedient love. It was dependent and the result of his obedient love. This is why Jesus tells us in the command, John 14, 15, if you love me, if, not since, if you love me, you will keep my commands. You're going to do what I ask you and tell you to do. So simply means that our relationship with others is maintained and matured only to the extent that we are God's obedient and joyful children. And if we're not obeying God, then our relationships will break down. The problem of every single broken, strained, damaged relationship is not the result of the other person. It's the result of my or that person's lack of love for God. Can you say amen? It's not this person or that person. It's about the way I am relating or refusing to relate to God. Therefore, what is the mending of every relationship? It's not that the other person do this, that, or the other. Is that each person in the relationship 
be aware of and begin to go back to God so that the relational love between us and the Father be mended and built up. And when this happens, we will begin to feel the shackles of ego, the shackles of anger and frustration, the shackles of all this flesh begin to be torn off by the superior power of the love of God. You see, we need to gaze on Jesus' example and power of his loving obedience that allowed him to enjoy a loving and happy relationship with his God. Remember the alternative, the difference? Genesis 6, 3, 6 through 24. Adam disobeyed. And look at the mess this world's in. You know whose fault it is? Adam did this to us. And he ate. The last three words of verse 6. And he ate. We hear because of disobedience. Now, if one man's disobedience of one time of one thing, one man did one thing one time. You got it? How many of us have only done one thing one time? One thing, one man, one time. When he did that, the entire cosmos fell into corruption. Ah, disobedience is a big deal. When gazing on Jesus' love for the Father, let's keep a few fundamentals in mind. I'm going to go through these quickly, not develop them. Jesus died to pay the full price for our sin. You see, if you're not anchored in Christ and who he is and what he's done, we're going to fail on this 100%. Jesus was raised for our justification, meaning that we were declared by God the judge to be not guilty of sin. Not innocent, but just not guilty. Jesus, we have, he has adopted us as sons or daughters, children, into his family. He has given us the Holy Spirit. He has filled us with his love. Right? This is what God has done in Christ. See, we have now been equipped to live in loving relationships. We have now been equipped. Listen to this word in 1 John. 314 and then the rest of it in 4, 7 through 11. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How do we know that? Well, because I prayed to receive Jesus Christ and I was baptized. Well, that may be a beginning point. That might be part of it. But the only effective way of knowing that we have been saved is the fruit of love. Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Chapter 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Relationships. Why? For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God, and he knows God. Remember? That they may know thee. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. And this is the love of God was being manifest among us. How? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we first loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin, the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Did I do this right or wrong? Okay? 
one another. Now, question for you. If you can answer this question, would you please proudly stand up? How many of us have done this perfectly? How many of us have done it perfectly and continually? Well, what does that mean? That means that every living person in here has failed to some extent at some time. Am I correct in assuming this? I mean, does that, is that the way that goes, huh, Victor? If they didn't do it perfectly, therefore, everyone has failed. You see, we look at this and we begin to realize, oh, my God. You mean to tell me that the way I'm not doing this and the way this and that, uh-oh, what, uh-oh. And you should feel that way. You should feel an uh-oh. And if you're not feeling an uh-oh, I would say uh-oh. Because that's the Holy Spirit saying, hey, you got a problem. Every one of us have failed. But what happens? We become afraid. We feel guilty. We feel condemned. And I believe the first word of this God who has loved us to and through the cross and in the resurrection, his first word would be, don't be afraid. If you're sitting here today and all of a sudden, because you realize, uh uh-oh, don't let the devil condemn you. Romans 8, 1 still rules. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So don't be afraid. Because fear is the devil's work in you. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because look around. Every single one of us are in the same boat. And one of Jesus' most powerful messages after the resurrection is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. What do you do? Confess to God. I'm missing it. I'm missing it. What do you do? You repent. Father, change my heart. Change my mind. I'm not going to be this way anymore. I determine in the power and the motivation of the Holy Spirit, I will no longer live this way. I will live in relational love with other brethren. Just make the decision. Why? You can. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives in you. Don't allow the enemy, as I said, to allow you, don't allow the enemy to condemn you or to to give you guilt. Don't do it. Just don't do it. Well, I feel, don't accept it. I'm sorry. You just have to fight the fight of faith. Satan, you're trying to put guilt on me or fear or condemnation. I'm not letting you. I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to think. I will not do it. Don't try not to. Do not do it. Refuse it. Turn to Jesus and trust his forgiveness and his restoration. Turn to the one who has died and has been raised to life and has given us his Holy Spirit so that in our failure we are not condemned. But in the midst of our failure, his love is even more dramatically demonstrated as he picks us up and restores us. Turn to Luke 15. There is an astounding 
revelation here in this parable of a son who has taken the father's inheritance and squandered it. So let's see what it looks like. Luke 15, verses 13 to 16. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Have any of us been guilty of squandering God's love in our relationships? Anybody here has done that to any extent? And when he had spent everything in severe, of severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. Uh-oh. Remember the uh-oh I talked about? Uh-oh. So he went and hired himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. No Jewish boy should be around pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. He's in the pig poop. I think sometimes that describes some of our relationships. So the son's sin. But let's look now at the son's confession and repentance. Remember, what do you do? What do you do? Well, you do what the son did. But when he came to himself, see, that's the Holy Spirit telling him, "Uh uh-oh, wake up. That's the Holy Spirit. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands, servants, have more more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise. I will arise. That's repentance. I will arise. That's repenting. That's turning away from the way we have been And have neglected back into the Father's will. I will arise and I will go to my Father. And I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. That's confession. I've sinned. I've not done relationships. I have denied your happiness in me. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Well, let me stop there. Okay? Let's look at the father's reception and restoration. Verse 20. I I may have it a little differently here. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, what? His father is sitting there with his hands folded, ready to beat the tar out of that boy. Ooh, how unkind and how ungodly so many are. When someone has sinned and we are ready to, To beat them. What the antithesis of the father's love. Look at this father. The father saw him and felt compassion. And what did the old man do? Remember they wore long clothes. He had to gird up this long thing. Tie it around his waist. Whatever. And this old guy ran down the hill toward his son. He did not wait for the son to make the journey all the way in. This old man tore out after his son. He tore out after this son. His son. And embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him. Father I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But 
Do you remember what the boy said? Treat me like what? A servant. Don't go that way, he said. He cut him off. Do you see it? He cut him off. The father interrupted the rest of the story. You ain't no servant. You're my son. When we have done wrong, we feel that we have in some way earned the displeasure of God. Well, there is displeasure, but we've not earned the anger of God. We've earned the mercy of God. We've earned the pity of God. We've earned the kindness of God. There is adjustment. There is discipline. Absolutely. But what we have earned in our or solicited in our disobedience is the mercy, the kindness, the goodness of our God. So what happens? But the father said, bring the quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put on ring on his hand and the shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead, but now is what? Alive. He was lost and is found and it began to celebrate. Do you hear the happiness of God in that? Do you hear it? Do you feel the happiness of God in that? You see, the more we gaze upon and cooperate with Jesus' love for God, for Jesus' love for God, the greater his pleasure and our happiness. You see, but the happiest day is not today. But the happiest day will be our reunion with our God. When we see him face to face, as we will fully and forever experience the greatest loving relationship of all, the relationship of love with our Father by the Spirit because of the Son. Now that's a happy day. Oh, happy day. Happy, Happy day. day.